Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by SunSouth. Spring is the season for doers, and SunSouth has quality John Deere tractors and mowers to help you tackle your terrain faster, more efficiently, and more affordably. During the spring sales event at SunSouth, save even more with 0% financing on select new John Deere tractors and mowers. Plus, get discounts on parts to keep your equipment running at its best. Hurry in during the spring sales event at SunSouth. Equipment for those that do. Some restrictions apply. See dealer for details. Expires March 31st, 2021. All right, I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here with my co-host, Clint Flowers. Clint, we're talking spring and summer food plots a little bit later today, but before we get there, what's been going on in your market, man? And things have been flying off the uh, shelf, so to speak. For me, it's definitely a great market still we're kind of all sitting around going this is awesome you seeing any signs of it slowing down not yet i think the cost of money these interest rates are going to have an effect on things if they keep going up so i think you know now is the time to act if you're sitting on the fence you know from both the selling and a buying perspective because it's easier to sell when people have more buying purchasing power and as a buyer your money goes further you can buy more acreage while they're still low we're as busy as i've ever seen in a long time Yeah, there just seems to be a buyer around every corner. And one of the issues and with a lot of the folks that maybe this isn't their first time buying land is that they feel like it's not a good time to buy because there are so many buyers out there. And what do you feel about that? I mean, do you think that this is the right time to buy? I do, and especially if you're borrowing money. I mean, I've bought myself this year for the same reason. You know, our business is so specific to people's needs that it's not like a we're selling one widget and everybody's chasing the same rabbit out there. The, the main thing is that you've got the ability to, to either pay cash or get financing quickly and have that dollar go further. And as long as inventory is good, then you don't have to worry about any kind of drastic price rises and things like that the way you see in a residential market or uh, in other commodity-based investments. So it's it's been pretty stable for both sides. I think, too, the, the other thing is it depends, right? I mean, it depends on the property. If you're not buying a place with a long-term mindset, you better have your pricing accurate, buying built-in equity. If not, you need to wait for the right opportunity. But it doesn't mean just because it's a good market for sellers that there aren't good opportunities out there. I will say this, though. One of the challenges is that stuff is just not staying on the market very long. I think we had a, I had a property go under contract with after two days on the market. I know you've had some properties go under contract with just one or two showings. And is this the fastest you've seen inventory turnover in, in your career? I mean, how would you compare this to any other time? Well, on the timber side of things, our prices are on the rise. We've got new sawmills and pellet mills and things coming to market that are going to keep those on the rise. So that's created a lot of energy in the market too, on top of the the COVID reasons and the low cost of money reasons and other things that come into play. But the other benefit to this being a good seller's market is it's bringing inventory to market. It's good inventory, good ground, good dirt, well-stocked ground from a timber standpoint or really productive ag land that has not been on the market for decades. And uh, because it's, it's owned by people, companies, landowners that don't, need to sell for financial reasons, they're looking for the best opportunity to bring those those tracks to market. This is the first time on a lot of these tracks, you've had an opportunity to even buy something of that grade in 20 or 30 years. And that's been a huge opportunity for buyers as well. 
Yeah. I mean, folks sitting on the sidelines saying this is the time, this is the right time. And they're putting stuff out there that hadn't seen the market in a long time. What do you recommend to landowners who, uh, especially with timber properties where they've got merchantable timber on their property, they're thinking about selling the entire property, but they're not sure. Should they harvest, then sell? Should they sell it all? Is there a mix? Is there a right? Is there a definite right or wrong answer? Does it depend? What What do you? What advice do you give landowners who are in that conundrum? It depends on the how much timber they've got. If they've got something that can be thin, but that they can also wait on, I usually advise them not to thin it first and leave that choice to the buyer rather than remove that option for them up front. Especially in like you know mid rotation pine plantations that are 15, 20 years old. But if you've got some really heavy old growth natural stands that are extremely high value per acre that might hinder our ability to sell it, not because of the quality of the trap, but because of the total price per acre, you know, something that's going to have to be three, four, or $5,000 an acre just to make up for the timber value that it's got. Sometimes it makes sense to go ahead and do a management thin on that, you know, not overcut it, not overdo it, but do enough to bring the per acre price down back into the median price range that most of the consumers want to be in. That makes a lot of sense because a lot of people use, especially online nowadays where most land searches begin, people are using filters to bring down the number of properties that they have to examine. And, you know, they're looking at things and they may be trying to filter based on like you're talking about, well, I don't want to spend more than $2,500 an acre or something like that. When in reality, there may be a property out there that's just loaded with big timber that's a great value, but it's at such a high price point that the buyer never sees it. And when you're doing that kind of thing and you are going in and you're going to do a thinning or you're going to do some type of timber harvest in advance of a, a sale, putting it on the market, how important are aesthetics? Because I've seen some properties that from a value standpoint, the timber they took off, it cost them more to cut those trees in lost value at the sale than they gained by cutting the trees. So where is that? How do you help them draw that line? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of times that from a selling standpoint, you could make more money leaving a tree on a stump than you can putting it on a truck. And that's typically comes down to aesthetics. So you, you want to protect the beauty of a property if, if you're we're focused on selling this to an end user or to a you know a dual investor that's going to hunt it and manage it for timber or crops, whatever the case may be. And jumping back to the price per acre of a second, you know, it's important for people to realize that sometimes you get what you pay for or many times. So when it comes to land, just talking pure from a timber standpoint, sometimes a $3,500 an acre piece of property can be a better deal than a $1,500 an acre piece of property purely based on timber value, soil quality, location quality, things like that that come into play. But back to aesthetics, you know, how a property makes somebody feel when they ride through it or take a look at it has become an increasingly integral part of selling land over the last 15 to 20 years because more and more people are buying property to get out to to relax to recreate with their family things like that so they don't want a property that looked like it's been over logged thinned heavily not been taken care of properly they want it to look good you know even if they're willing to pay a little bit more for that just so they can get out there and start enjoying it, have it give them that emotional return that they're looking for in a piece of rural land. Yeah, that's right. And 
Yeah, yeah, I was on a track just this week and it had a clear cut done. They were getting ready to put it on the market and the trees were ready to be clear cut. It wasn't that they did the wrong thing from a timber management standpoint, but it was just barren. And even though those trees will grow back, it's going to be a while for the next owner before they're going to have that aesthetic back. And so I really feel that they they made the wrong choice in doing that. Uh, it's going to end up costing them money more money than what they gained in the timber harvest. So I just think that boils down to what are your goals in the sale? And I don't know, it, it almost seems that there's, I wonder if there's ever a situation where, where a clear cut makes sense. It seems like we see a lot of that on the market where a property is clear cut and then immediately listed. Is that ever a good idea? It needs to be in a situation where like you've got a wet weather track and pulpwood prices skyrocket and you can take advantage of that and get double and triple your normal return on that timber versus a kind of your more standard market. What the landowner's doing then is a time value money issue where they're capturing all that future income from the timber that they would have gotten right then. So that makes sense for that purpose. And then, but you've got to realize in doing that, that you're going to take a hit on the dirt value when if you go to immediately put it on the market and sell it as a clear cut or sell it as or reforest it and put a a uh, one-year-old stand out there, you're still going to look pretty rough. You've got to understand that you're going to take a discount on that area, on that acreage from a retail standpoint. You know, if you're a timber investor selling to a timber company, they're not going to care that much. But it, the people that pay the most for dirt are the end users, the hunters, the people buying it for recreation. And they, on average, do not like clear cuts. Speaking of dirt values, I know in, in my market, I'm seeing some promising things in terms of uh, what properties are selling for. Do you see much of a creep in dirt values happening right now in your area? And then also, you know, in the last recession, if we, when that inevitably comes, when that correction inevitably comes, what do you see happening in dirt values with rural land? I mean, we've seen a slight creep, but nothing above historical average is really what we're seeing more than we're seeing a dirt value increase, it's more that we're seeing a decrease in time on market. And as far as the crash comes, I mean, the beauty of land is that it's so versatile that unless you've just got a piece of property that won't grow anything, the only thing you can ever do on it is hunt. The only time we we don't ever really see a downturn in, in dirt values, except on those kind of tracks. Because when things are going good, people are making a lot of money, the economy's good, they want to buy land. It's kind of the weekend retreats, the hunting tracks, things like that. When things go poorly, the market turns south, the economy goes on a big downward trend. Then they want to buy land uh, as a safe harbor investment to protect themselves from those market volatilities. So the demand is always steady. It's just a matter of perspective on you know which road are we on at the moment. When you're talking to prospective buyers, if they've got a big investment component, you know if investment is their first thing on their mind when it comes to buying a piece of land and you're thinking about that dirt value, what kind of historical average do you like to work with? Folks may not know you have a degree in investment analysis. So what kind of historical average do you work on for dirt to compound over time? Joe, I mean, the average that I see used, you know, by appraisers and funds and everything else, is about one and a half percent a year. Beyond that, everything is site-specific. I know we say it depends a lot, but that's really the best answer you can give and, and just understand that if that really matters to you, you need to be analytical in your processes and deal with people that know what they're talking about and are active in that local market, not just the land market or timber market in general, so that they can help you with that. Let's say you're in the same county 
And one side of the county is within a, a 60 to 70 mile haul distance of a high concentration of mills, paper mills, sawmills, whatever the case may be in your market. And the other side of the county is 100 miles away. Well, that side of the county that's within the closer hauling distance, they're going to get higher returns on their timber versus the 100 mile range because logging prices are going to be higher. And if you roll all that, all of that back down to dirt prices, and you're basing it purely on investment, then the dirt in that side of the county with the shorter haul is worth more than the other side. They're both in the same county. So if you just go off county averages and things like that, then you could get burned long-term because you didn't do the proper level of due diligence. Same thing with soil quality. We can't all sit here and say dirt is dirt is dirt. It's not. Some tracks have higher site indexes. Some tracks will grow great hardwood. Some tracks will grow great pine. Some tracks won't hardly grow anything. And they could all be in the same county, could all be in the same hauling range, everything. But if you don't know, or you're not dealing with somebody that knows how to dig into that for you, analyze that for you, and properly elaborate on all that for you for your scope, then you could pay for it in the long run. Yeah. And I think too, that's important to also, you know, you're talking about dirt and timber. It could also be a transitional area. Baldwin County, Alabama, or, or Walton County, Florida, you may see huge increases in dirt value because all of a sudden it's in the path of development or that county's highly attractive for various reasons where you may see that big increase, but over the long term, we're talking 30, 40, 50 year horizons, you're still going to be looking at that one and a half percent type of increase. And it's just important to talk to somebody who understands what's going on in those areas. The other thing is, when you talk about that one and a half percent, is that a compounding appreciation? So is it, you know, one and a half on top of the existing dirt value and then one and a half on top of that? Or is it more of a simple appreciation? So if somebody's trying to, you know, assess this over a 10 year horizon, is it going to be, you know, a 15% increase over 10 years? Or is it going to be much more than that with compounding? Typically, yes, but it's always location specific. And it could be also tied to what's going on in the banking world in terms of interest rates and things like that too, because the cost of assets typically moves inversely with the cost of money. So that that does roll back to real estate too, to some extent. Well, it's all fun. I enjoy the investment side of land ownership. Uh, I like looking at all those things. I enjoy the recreational side of it just as much. And that's what the second half of our show is going to be. We're going to be talking about plant and spring and summer food plots. Before we get there, though, let's take a quick break and hear from some of our show sponsors. Bucks Island is a family-owned and operated business since 1948. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They love trade-ins for boats and motors, and they can rig your boat or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, and you can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. If you've been considering forestry mulching, don't forget, there is no substitute for horsepower. Brush Clearing Services provides high-output, high-production forestry mulchers from three to 600 horsepower. Smaller Skid steer mulcher runtime rates may be lower, but BCS production will be two to three times more than these smaller machines. BCS prides itself on providing dependable equipment to ensure project completion is on time and under budget. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. 
On today's show, we are going to be talking about the importance of summer food plots for deer. Clint, I know growing up, we didn't really plan a whole lot of summer food plots. I didn't myself. You know, by that time, we were moved on to thinking about fishing or something else usually. And I still think that's probably the case for the most part. I I would guess that most people that plant fall food plots don't plant summer crops, summer forage. Do you guys do any summer stuff at your place? Yeah, we, well, we just started in the last year or two. Uh, we're typically of that mindset that you mentioned and, you know, just on the other things. And, and we'll get back to that in late summer, early fall. But I saw a huge return out of it last year and, and look forward to learning more today. Yeah, I think first and foremost, we want to talk about the importance and why it is important. And then we'll get into some of the main questions of when, what, why, all these different things to do that. We're talking to Brandon Self today. Brandon is the Director of Operations at the Whitetail Institute in Pentlala, Alabama. Brandon, welcome to Huntland, man. Tell us a little bit about what you guys do there at the Whitetail Institute and what your role is. Well, first off, thanks, guys, for having me on. It's always good to talk food plots, especially this time of the year, just like you say, people don't think about it as much as they do in the fall. But here, we've been in business for close to 30 years. We kind of started the food plot industry. We're kind of the flagship of the food plot industry just because we've been around so long, the science that we put into these products and and the work that we have going into our food plot knowledge is very extensive. We have people that have been on board with us for 30 plus, you know, well, 30 years since the company started still. So that just goes to show you what kind of company this is. I've been with the company about 15 years, started when I was young and enjoyed the whole aspect of the business and and the owners of the company and the company's mission as we move forward. And it's just been great working for this company. Uh, we are the leader. We do do high end food plot seeds, but there's, like I say, there's a lot of research that goes in and development that goes into our products. And, uh, you know, it's not like going to the farm supply store and just buying a mix to put out, you know, these are, these are food plots you got to take care of. You got to maintain and you got to do everything right to get the best, out of them. Brandon, do you think I was right in the beginning of the show? I mean, how popular would you say are summer food plots in comparison to say fall food plots? Definitely not as popular as fall, but gaining more and more popularity. Once people are starting to learn the benefits of summer food plots, there's a lot more to it than just having something for them to eat through the, through the summer and spring. So once people have started to gain knowledge on that, it's become a lot more popular. Let's talk about some of those benefits a little bit. So, I mean, of course, we're going to be focused really on deer because that's the most popular game animal, but there's a lot more going on in the woods than just deer. What what are some of those benefits for deer and other game species? Especially for the deer, a lot of these summer food plots you can plant have a lot of tonnage. They get really tall, get really thick and gnarly. And these are annual summer, spring annual plots I'm mentioning, and the deer will use them to travel through. They'll use them. If you don't have any bedding area around, they'll use a lot of these type plots for bedding. You're, of course, you're getting protein off of them. You're getting the grazing. You're getting the constant food source. But, you know, there's a lot more benefit that goes into that. Plus, in the long run, it ends up helping your fall food plots if you have these spring, summer food plots in. But then you also get into spring plant, spring planting of perennial products like clover or, you know, we have a mix that's called fusion, which is clover and chicory. And those crops can benefit the turkeys. Some of our annual spring summer plots can benefit different wildlife, birds, you know, 
turkeys as well. It really covers a lot of basis on what you can do in the spring to last you through the spring and summer and get all those benefits. What about soil building? I mean, we've done a few shows in the past really talking about soil health being really the fundamental for all of this. Are summer food plots a a key component of helping the soil, say for your fall plantings that may be more popular or just helping the soil in general? Sure. Especially crop rotation, especially with something like a brassica that you would plant in the fall, you could have issues with certain pests in a brassica plot that you plant year after year. And if you rotate something in for an, you know, an annual spring, summer rotational crop in there, it could help break those cycles for your fall plantings to do better. And a lot of people are just now starting to learn that, that rotational planting, especially spring, summer annuals can help your fall plantings tremendously. You can plant soil builders. And as a matter of fact, we're in the works right now of a new product that we're going to have in the market that's going to be strictly geared towards that soil building properties. And But yes, definitely the spring, summer annual plantings can help your fall plantings in the long run. You know, as a landowner, we're always trying to decide what to plant and really the, the whys of it. I know I struggle with trying to find that balance. So when we're talking about perennials versus annuals, can you go through the main pros and cons of those and and how we really benefit from one versus the other? Sure. Most perennial plantings, especially down here where we are in the South, spring planting of perennials can be a little iffy just because of the heat of the summer and weed competition that you have to deal with. But the, the good thing about spring planting perennials down here is you have more growth for that first hunting season than if you fall planted it. The benefits of a perennial, of course, are the longevity. You'll get three to five years if you take care of it, maintain it right, you know, and you'll have that constant good protein food source all the time. Three to five years, it'll be there. Now, the drawbacks of spring planting, like I say, could be weed competition where you would have to take better care of them, uh, keep a closer eye on them. And for a lot of people that don't live right beside their hunting land, that's something that kind of deters them from planting any kind of perennial in the spring. But the benefits of planting annuals, is number one, like we were talking about earlier, is rotational planting. You can plant a spring, summer annual, let it go, and then plant you a fall annual in the fall. The attraction of a fall planted annual is going to be a lot, they draw a lot better than, you know, your perennial does just because your perennial is there all the time. The deer are going to use it when they want it. And, you know, if they've got something over here that just gets really sweet at a certain time of the year, then it could attract better. So those are the benefits of planting annuals and the benefits and drawbacks of planting the perennials. What about costs, Brandon? I mean, like if you talk about perennials and annuals, the perennials having that three to five year lifespan with proper maintenance, of course, there's a cost to that maintenance and there's a cost to establishing it. But over the long term, does perennial versus annual, does one become more economical? Yes. uh, Perennials in my mind are always more economical, especially if you get the soil right before you plant. In some cases with new customers, they go into it kind of blindly without trying to get any information from us and they just throw the seed out with some fertilizer and then it ends up kind of costing you a little bit more because you got to catch up with the weeds and there's a little more money involved. But if you, if you maintain, if you get the dirt right first and then you plant a perennial, yeah, three to five years is what you're going to get out of it. Now I have customers, some that have 12 year old clover plots. So maintaining it right can help cut the cost back. But basically for cost, you're looking at fertilizer, lime, and mowing if you have to mow a couple of times a year sometimes. And then, of course, 
herbicides if you have to spray. So then the annuals, you don't have any of that other stuff that's involved, but you do really. So if you plant an annual here in the fall, you're going to have to fertilize it. You're going to have to lime it. You're going to usually have to spray the ground with some kind of herbicide before you plant, but then you're going to do it right back again in the spring. And then you're going to do it right back again in the fall. So, you know, really the cost is for a perennial, maybe a little cheaper in the long run, but for the jobs that the two do compare, it's hard to say which one's more cost effective. And if you're going to set up a perennial crop, how do you behave in the fall when you're bringing in the fall planting to make sure that you don't damage that perennial? Well, what most people do is plant the perennial field and just leave it to go through hunting season because the deer are still going to use that perennial plot during the, the hunting season. As, until it goes dormant and they eat it to the ground, and there's nothing left to graze on, they'll still use it. But the only way really to incorporate annuals into your perennial plot is by overseeding. And, you know, that's just, it's just the act of taking a bag of, of fall annual that can be top seeded and broadcasting it over the top of your perennial field at a very low rate to kind of give you some annual mixed in with it. The other thing you can do is fall plant a perennial and add an annual to it when you plant then. But, you know, that, that's another way of getting the two mixed. But really, if, if you've got a perennial plot that's already established and it, the deer are already using it, I would suggest planting maybe take a corner out of that plot if you want to have a fall annual or plant a whole separate field of a fall annual. It's the time of year I love the most in that we've got turkey season coming up in just a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm really, <laughs> really excited. I don't know if you can tell, but one of the reasons that I love planting over supplemental feeding, which in the case of Alabama baiting, which has just become legal, is that you get that long-term benefit of, hey, it's there for during hunting season, but it, it extends on. And, you know, I, I know that my turkeys love the plantings that we put out there for our deer in the fall. And, and that really helps us and aids us. And all those things are important for the year round health of all different kinds of wildlife. But when it comes to turkey season, spring is about to be here. We're talking about summer food plots, meaning summer forage. When should we begin preparing these sites if we're going to plant in the spring, especially the difference? Like you mentioned, maybe it's not right to do perennials this spring. What do you think when it comes to uh, site preparation? And also, you mentioned those guys that don't live right near their property. Maybe they can get up in the spring and do some work during turkey season, or maybe they need to wait till after. What do you think as far as timing? Well, first off, the biggest factor that people need to take into consideration is if your pH, of course, we always recommend soil testing first and foremost on anything you plant. And, you know, if you have a pH that's a little lacking that you have to add lime to get that pH up, well, you want to do it as early in advance as you can. So if you plan on planting something in the spring, you may want to soil test it in the fall of the year before. If it needs two tons of lime an acre, then you need to go on and add that lime then. So by the time your spring planting comes, you're ready to go after it. And so that takes a little bit of planting. Also, you need to have as good a clean seed bed as you can. So spray in with a glyphosate or something like that to so you're looking at, you know, at least a month or so trying to get that dirt prepared before you plant any spring planting. Now, as far as when you plant the spring planting, what should you shoot for? Well, it really depends. A lot of people, frost seeding is kind of popular these days. And frost seeding is just the act of broadcasting a perennial on to exposed dirt while there's still frost on the ground. And then you get an established perennial field that way without having to do any ground preparation. 
that works. You know, I wouldn't say it works. Definitely doesn't work as well as preparing your ground. But you want to start planning, you know, breaking the dirt, all that, an actual spring, summer annual. You know, you don't want to have any frost on these spring, summer annuals after you plant them. So once you get them in, you really want to, when the farmers start planting their soybeans, planting their spring crops, you're pretty safe getting your seed in the ground. But you don't want to do it too early because if these spring, summer annuals germinate and then you have a, a late frost on it, it could kill your young tender plants. So usually make sure all chance of frost is gone and then you can start getting your seed in the ground. But the dirt work at part actually comes way in advance of So if somebody's listening to this now and they haven't gotten their soil test and they haven't made their amendments if they're necessary, what would you recommend they do this spring? If they want to plant a summer food plot, should they still try and then just, you know, understand that results may be mixed or do they need to really focus this spring on their soil amendments and then plan on being able to plant in the fall and then again the following spring? What would you do if somebody's behind the eight ball or excuse me, they're just behind? I would say if it's a perennial planting, and it really depends on the condition of their soil at the time, if it's pretty rough soil and pretty bad shape and you're going to plant a perennial, I would probably go ahead and start putting your lime down now and just let the ground work and break the ground and keep it turned over to keep those new weed seeds turned over and killing them and then plant in the fall. But now if it's a a spring, summer annual, then you probably could go ahead, depending on the issue you're dealing with, but I would say... Nine times out of 10, I'd go ahead and start working the ground and getting that spring, summer annual in. Get your lime on. You know, it's going to take a little while to work, but we actually have a new product called Impact that's kind of that medium to get you between that initial liming and before the lime starts taking advance or taking into account. So, you know, it's a water-soluble oxide that opens up the nutrients that are available in the dirt, and you can spray it right over the top of your field before rain. And then when that rain comes, it's opening up all those nutrients and you can get some fertilizer on it and go ahead and get the lime on it. So there's ways to bridge that gap where you can go ahead and plant in the spring. You mentioned breaking the soil and no plow is becoming in no till and however you want to call it, throw and grow or mow and grow. And there's a lot of different names out there for it, but it's becoming more and more popular. Do you guys offer any kind of summer options for folks that may be in that camp? We do. You know, we have a product that's called Imperial No-Plow. It's probably one of the first no-plow blends ever on the market. And it was has been one of our best sellers ever since we've had it. It's really designed for the fall, but now we have a lot of customers that plant it in the spring just strictly because they don't have a way to get in there and prepare that seed bed correctly. And they need something to get them by. And, then, and the no-plow will, will do just that. It'll get you by through the spring and summer, and then you may have to replant it in the fall. But that's really the only option we have that's kind of geared towards that that you speak of. And for as far as preparing the site for that option, is that just going to be a simple a glyphosate killing the existing vegetation and, and spreading that over the top? What's got to be done to be able to no-plow with the uh, Imperial no-plow? Yeah, it basically glyphosate, kill off the existing vegetation. You know, I've done it different ways. I've used a drag hair and just drug over it and tried to break it up as good as I can. I've used a hand rake. As long as you get good seed to soil contact, you're going to have germination. So that's the thing. You don't want to broadcast it on a heavy sod base. Mow the field real low. Wait about a week till it starts to grow back. Spray it with glyphosate. Once all that's dead, then if you can drag something across it to break it up and broadcast it with some fertilizer or just broadcast it on good exposed dirt uh, with some fertilizer, you should be fine. 
sounds like a good option for those guys who maybe are limited by their equipment or, or limited by uh, access with their equipment. It may become part of their rotation or maybe everything that they do, depending on just what they got going on at their property. Now, you've talked about perennials and annuals. We talked a little bit about that soil test. What about recommendations based on soil type? I mean, I guess, you know, when it comes to wind plant, a lot of that depends on if you're talking about the state of Alabama. You, if you're in the northern part of the state, you may plant at a completely different time than if you're down in South Alabama. And same thing for folks that are listening that aren't in Alabama. So a lot of that's just got to be based on your zone and when the rain's coming, that kind of thing. But what about soil types? We deal with sandy soils, heavy clay soils. Do you have any recommendations on choosing the right mix based on soil type? Sure. You know, we really only carry one spring summer annual. That's the best selling spring summer annual you can find. And there's a reason behind that is called power plant. And for power plant, we, you want to try to gear it towards a, a moderately drained soil. It doesn't like really wet bottom ground. That's going to hold a lot of moisture. Uh, so for our one flagship spring summer annual, the power plant, that's kind of what you want. You want a, you know, a moderately drained soil that just not going to hold a lot of water and, and stay damp. But now, as far as perennials go, we have multitudes of options for different soil types. But basically, as a general rule, clover-based products like our clover and chicory mix called Fusion, they're going to like bottom ground, river bottoms, creek bottoms, something that's going to hold moisture. That's going to, you know, that's not going to dry out a whole lot. That, that's your clover-based products are going to go there. Now, if it's a good soil with a good pH and doesn't hold much moisture, maybe a hillside, some land that has a little sand in it that drains off, we have a product called Alpha Rack Plus, which is alfalfa, chicory, and clover. It does better in those draining soil types. And then we have a product called Extreme, which Extreme will grow. I've seen it grow on the warehouse floor, so it'll grow about anywhere. Low pH, high pH, it can get by on 15 inches annually of rainfall where other perennials need about 30 inches. Really rough soil types, but you want to get a perennial in there. If you get the fertilizer to it and take care of the ground, that extreme is what you're going to look for there. So we do have options for any kind of soil type you can think of. So if you're like me and you're two hours and 40 minutes away on a good day, and I'm in the black belt of Alabama where we get a lot of diversity in soil types. You know, I've got everything from sandy loam to kind of that river silt bottom, which is some sandy loam, some areas more loamy. And then we've got third of the property that's prairie clay. What is the universal or what would you call the most universal application here for somebody that doesn't have a lot of time and they don't have the ability to really go in and diversify because of that? either lack of bandwidth or just general lack of time? If I were going to pick one perennial mix that I would try on just about anything, it would be the fusion, which is clover and chicory mixed together. We've have customers that plant it in all types of soil. So if I just had to pick one, that's probably what I would use. Also, too, if you, if you just want to come one time and try to get it all done in one day, uh, you could also pick an annual and plant a spring-summer annual like our power plant let it go until your fall dates. And then we got some thing, different things you can do with that power plant in the fall to, to utilize it all the way through the season. So fusion would be my go-to, but there again, I don't want to paint a picture that can't be actually happened. So if your soil's decent and you've got pretty good pH, you can fertilize it when you plant it, then the fusion would cover probably more ground than anything else I have. Brandon, let's talk about equipment a little bit. 
we've been talking about perennials and annuals, talking about clover, talking about a lot of different types of seeds. Is there any specialized equipment that's going to be needed for any of these recommendations other than just your standard disc and a seed spreader and a fertilizer spreader? I mean, are you really going to need to change your equipment at all for any of the different types of, of seeds that y'all use? No, you can plant any seed we have with a tractor and a disc with a fertilizer spreader and with a hand seeder. And that's how we plant everything that we have. That's how we do it. Now, some people use cultipackers and we have used cultipackers and a lot of times planting the small perennial seeds we do definitely don't have to have one. But a disc, fertilizer spreader, a hand spreader for our seeds. And really, you can plant anything we have as long as you can get the ground smooth with a drag or dragging a cedar limb over it or using a cultipacker, anything like that, you can plant anything we have. We talked about it a little bit in the beginning of the show, the cost benefit of using perennials and annuals. If somebody's on a tight budget, is there a best seed mix for the money? And when I say that, I mean the most benefit to the animal for the least amount of cost. I mean, is there some one plan or one mix that you feel like really is the most economical route to go? If a customer calls me and that's what they're limited to, you know, if money's limited, time's limited, equipment's limited, the Imperial no-plow is always my recommendation. Brandon, on the power plant, you mentioned that's y'all's flagship product. I mean, what all's included in that? And, you know, what are the benefits of it versus others? Sure. The power plant is our go-to spring, summer annual mix. It's got sunflowers, soybeans, forage beans. It's got peas, and it's also got sun hemp. So the theory behind this planting, when we first released power plant, instead of sun hemp, it had sorghum in it. The sorghum was great, but the problem was you couldn't spray it with a grass herbicide. So we took the sorghum out, we added the sun hemp, and now you can spray it with IRS Max grass herbicide in the early stages to keep competition out. But the way this product works is the sunflowers, the sun hemp, they both grow up really tall, six, eight feet tall. In some instances, I've seen 10 feet tall, but they grow up real tall. They're basically a trellis crop. So the beans and the peas, they're climbing in there real gnarly, climbing up those stalks. And what that does is prevents the deer from just overgrazing them like a full bean field or a full pea field would be. And that way it lasts you a little longer. But, you know, there's also more benefits than the food aspect of this power plant. Like I mentioned earlier, they're going to use this plot that you plant the power plant in, the the plot. They're going to use it for bedding. They're going to travel through it. A lot of times I've seen fields where the deer will go in the middle of this power plant and they'll eat from the inside out. Just because it's so tall, they feel comfortable inside that gnarly tangled up mess that they're going to eat in there and they're going to eat their way out and leave the outside standing to where they're still comfortable eating in there. The only issue that you could run into with the power plant is not planting enough. And uh, I've learned it firsthand many times. If you don't plant an acre and a half two acres. Sometimes if your deer density is not real high, you can get away with an acre. But if you plant a half acre, three quarters of an acre of power plant, once the deer find it, it'll never make it. They eat it to the ground as fast as it can come up. So you want to get enough land to plant this where the forage can get up and get established before the deer really wreak havoc on it. Now, if you can fence in the plot, that's great. It'll work that way. We've done it with, you know, electric fence. We've done it with the ribbon fence and it does let it get established enough for where the deer can't eat it to the ground. So biggest takeaway from this is make sure you plant enough of it. One more aspect of the power plant that I I like to mention, just because we get this question a lot, especially down here in the South. 
I'm going to plant this power plant in the spring, summer. It's going to go all the way through the year. Why? And, and down here in the South, our growing season so long, when it comes fall planting time, you still got a full plot full of power plant if they hadn't eaten it down. So what am I going to do with it? Well, to me, that's my favorite part of the power plant. While you have this big, tall, gnarly field still standing in the come your fall planting dates, and this is for the North and the South. It really works both ways, but you got this field that's standing. I, in my opinion, don't want to get rid of a full field for no reason, just to plant something different. So what we found through the years that works tremendously is you take rows and you mow rows through that standing power plant. So you've got basically shooting lanes, two discs wide. You go through there and you make two passes and maybe make you two or three rows or four rows, however you want to do it. And then you take those rows and you plant a fall annual inside those rows of that standing power plant. So now these deer have this tall, gnarly, tangled mess that they felt comfortable eating in all spring and summer. And they're going to come in there and get on those rows and think, well, I'm invisible because I've been invisible all year. I'm just going to eat these fall food plots right now. And the, the amount of deer you'll see on that mix of, of your spring-summer annual that you've mowed rows through and added a fall annual is tremendous. So to me, you get more benefit out of power plant than just your spring-summer growing season. You get that fall attraction, too, because it's helping you keep the deer protected to eat that fall annual. I like the aspect of getting them comfortable. And if you've ever hunted a three- or four-year-old cutover that's been replanted, you've seen how deer feel that they're invisible when they're not to hunters and they get really comfortable in those areas and you were saying that that's really important that you have a big enough plot to do that in what if somebody doesn't what if they're hunting timber company land or maybe their food plots are just small and they're maybe under an acre would you then go back to maybe the imperial no plow or the fusion and just base it off of soil type if yeah if you don't have enough land to plant that or if you can't if you do have a small spot that you can fence off if you don't have either one of those, then yeah, I mean, match your soil type to a perennial blend and plant you a perennial. If not, if you want to plant some in the spring just to get you by, just to have some food there, then you could go with a no-plow. But, you know, there's there's a lot of options you can do. But the power plant, I just like to give everybody that word of advice before planting because, like I said earlier, I've done it just trial and error to see how much could withstand the grazing pressure. Last year, I planted two three-quarter acre plots that were about... 300 yards from each other and it germinated grew great as soon as they found it they wiped it to the ground my grazing cages were high and thick and lush and it was completely to the ground on the outside so just be leery of that fact and try to plant as much as you can or fence it off if you can't and if you can't do either one of those then look for maybe an annual that'll match your soil type and if not just plant you some no plow and get you through to the fall well brandon This is a lot of data for somebody, and I know a lot of people are probably sitting there thinking, a lot like Clint, I got limited time, I want to go fishing, baseball's starting up. You know, they got all these different things that are pulling at their time in the spring, and in addition to that, they may be thinking, you know, I've got soils over like this on this side of the property, and I got different soils over there. Do you guys offer any resources for someone to kind of distill all this information and learn what's going to be best for them based on the part of the country they're in or the type of soil they have, or also just the goals that they have for their deer or their turkeys or just the goals that they have for their plantings. Where could people go? Sure. Of course, one of the biggest benefits of our company is our customer service. We're here Monday through Friday, eight to five, that's central time. Like I say, everybody here that works here, we're hunters, we're outdoorsmen. 
We have been all of our lives. We're not like any other company where you're going to call and get some random person that doesn't know anything about the product. You call us, we plant them, we grow them, we hunt, we know all about them. So call us 800-688-3030 and we'll be glad to help you there. You can go to our website, whitetailinstitute.com, look up, you know, any information you can find on there, read about our products. You can also join our Facebook group, which is Food Plots with Whitetail Institute. We have a lot of product information on there, customers throughout the country that use it, that are corresponding with each other on there. We offer some specials on there once you're a member. So there's many different avenues. I will say our customer service here is second to none. So anytime you need anything, you call us. And again, the number is 800-688-3030, and we'll be glad to help you with any questions you have. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for joining us and uh, good luck with your spring and summer food plots coming up and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Maybe we'll get back on here pretty soon and, and be talking about fall food plots. It'll be here before you know it. Yeah, guys. Thank y'all so much. I enjoy talking food plots and I've enjoyed talking to y'all today. Clint, when you're dealing with buyers, do you ever find that folks want to know if a property has been a part of a summer food plot program? Do you get those kind of questions? Yeah, uh, we do, especially if there's evidence of it. And, you know, a lot of people go, especially if they see some hemp or something like that. Like, What's that? We get into that. And, and, you know, that level of care and thought coming from a seller typically creates value in the mind of most buyers, too. Because if somebody's taking the time and the diligence to go in there and make sure that those kind of crops are out there for their game all year, they know that the property has been really well taken care of and really well managed. Yeah. I agree. I think the the more touches that you can prove a landowner has had with that property, whether it's summer food plots, game camera photos, actual trophies on the wall, all those things add up and make those buyers more comfortable. They feel like they can just step into that environment as opposed to having to start completely from scratch. Well, folks, I hope you learned something this week and I, I hope you're getting some plans together for your summer food plots. It's definitely a important part of managing your, your wildlife and making your property more valuable. We want to make it easy for you to listen and get each new show as soon as it is ready. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to seven, seven, three, seven, seven, zero, four, three, seven, seven. Again, just text the word hunting with a G to seven, seven, three, seven, seven, zero, four three seven seven to join our email list and get the new show each week as always please be sure to subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts we really appreciate it hope you guys stay safe out there we'll talk to you next week this week's hunting land podcast has been brought to you by alabama ag credit as the local experts in rural real estate financing they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops because sometimes natural resources need financial resources and while some lenders don't get it they do learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com and also brought to you by brush clearing services check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. And also brought to you by SunSouth. From outdoor equipment, parts, service, accessories, SunSouth has you covered. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth or sunsouth.com for quality John Deere equipment. SunSouth, for those that do. 
and also brought to you by Flux Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also, Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. For over 100 years, they've helped people just like you explore your options so you can apply with confidence and get started living your dream in the country. Check them out at GoRural.net or give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.